0: Disney could sell off some or all of ESPN. The Commander's sale is hitting a speed bump right before the finish line and we're gonna talk Wimbledon with Patrick McEnroe. It's Friday, July 14th. I'm senior writer, Owen Poindexter and this is Front Office Sports Today. Disney CEO, Bob Iger just got a two year extension on his contract. And now he is talking about selling stakes or spinning off core properties, including ABC and ESPN. Joining me now to discuss is FOS senior writer Mike McCarthy. Welcome, Mike. Hey, Owen. How are you doing? Doing good. Doing all right. So, yeah, what's the scoop here? What why is uh, why is Iger suddenly, you know, talking about you know changing things up with ESPN?
1: Well, Iger has got a problem on his hands uh, right now. Disney is faced with a, a host of corporate problems, and one of them, of course, is ESPN. Uh, this was the longtime cash cow for Disney. Uh, just generated billions and billions of dollars, but cord cutting has really hurt ESPN. So he's faced with the strategic decision of whether or not to keep ESPN and keep the linear TV networks or sell them off as non-core assets. I think what Bob is doing here is very telling, Owen. He's saying that he wants to keep ESPN- although he's open to a strategic investment or, or a partnership, but he's more willing to sell the ABCs in the linear networks. So I just sh- think that shows that Bob Iger's heart is still in sports. Uh, Ian, he was a guy who cut his teeth as a young executive under Rune Arledge at the legendary ABC Sports, and he's still a sports guy at heart.
0: And should Disney take on a partner for ESPN that it would be working together with, What's your Spidey sense around what direction that would take the network?
1: If I was to uh, lay a bet, I would say a sports betting giant. Uh, ESPN and Disney have been dancing around sports betting for years without getting wet. Uh, they don't want to get their hands dirty, but they want a piece of that huge amount of money that's coming in. So they've been talking about doing a strategic alliance for years with a FanDuel or a DraftKings or a Caesars. So if I was to look at the first set of candidates I would say some sort of strategic alliance and or investments with a big sports betting giant with Fanatics as a possible wild card.
0: That Fanatics is an interesting name there. They're getting into live events themselves and we had that report a few months ago I think CNBC's Alex Sherman who's been on the show um, said that ESPN wants to be the hub for streaming so even if they're going to bounce you over to some other network Because no one knows where to watch sports anymore. So you want to turn on Wimbledon or something, you know, is that on ESPN? Is that on a, you know, one of your mainstream networks or whatever? Um, Because streaming is, is, you know, scattering everything to, you know, because everyone wants something. Uh, Anyway, ESPN wants to be the hub of like, okay, I'll go to ESPN and then I'll find where to go next. And so, yeah, as long as you're there why not be able to place a bet on it which you know ESPN you know they have betting partners but they don't you can't place bets with ESPN right now and it, yeah it does feel like they want that money
1: yeah you, you you think about it i mean it must be really galling to disney and espn to be on the sidelines you've had this whole explosion of tens and billions of dollars pouring into the sports industry the nfl and the leagues are you know up to their neck in it they're getting their piece and here's the worldwide leader in sports the most famous name in sports at sitting it out because of the family image of Disney. So uh, I I think, uh, you know, what Iger was doing there was sending a message to the street and to, you know, sports betting companies that now's the time.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Should be fascinating to watch. Mike McCarthy, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. NFL owners are set to vote on the sale of the Washington Commanders to Josh Harris next week for $6 billion. But now the Washington Post is reporting that there could be serious complications Joining me now to discuss is FOS senior reporter, AJ Perez. Welcome, AJ.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me back.
0: So what's going on here? Is the sale of the commanders to Josh Harris in doubt in any way?
2: No, um, there is a a timing issue. So Thursday is going to be, Thursday in Minnesota is going to be the special meeting. My sources are telling me that it's still on, that any issues that the Washington Post reported about yesterday will be resolved uh, before that. Now, the league, you know, could have to step in at some point maybe uh but they're you know they take in 12 billion dollars a year as uh, david reported in uh, today in uh in thursday's newsletter uh so you know there's a lot there's a lot of ways to handle this and i think that you know the last thing they the last thing anybody wants is to dance Sider to remain as owner um and uh you know this whole complication over over, over the emails which we've reported before how john gruden's you know those leak of John Gruden's emails caused a, cas- a cascading effect that eventually led to Dan Snyder's, uh, not wouldn't say ouster, but it you know kind of forced him to sell.
0: Yeah, and remind us what's what's the deal with Gruden's emails and why is it bubbling up now?
2: Yeah, so this th- those were leaked uh, almost two years ago. That was uh, and um, they we still don't know who leaked them. There's a lot of theories. Uh, um, ESPN tried to get at it as a lot of us have, and we still don't know where it came from. But if uh, if you know at some point it's proven that Snyder leaked them, you know what the the holdup is what happens. I mean the the NFL owners don't want to be on the hook for Dan Snyder because there's a lawsuit in that's uh, still ongoing. It's been going on for uh, almost since the time that uh, that um, Gruden was fired in October 2021. That uh, oh sorry he was forced to resign or resigned under pressure to be accurate. Um, you know he those the, there was uh, three different stories. The first two. Um, were very damning. Um, you know, they, they, it was, it was emails sent while, while John Gruden was a analyst at ESPN. So this is over about a decade ago. Um, and this, the, these were all scooped up in the first investigation of the Washington commanders. Um, that led to a, uh, a fine of the team of $10 million and some quasi suspension of Snyder, uh, where he had to step down as, uh, the day to day operations guy and his wife took over Tanya. And Johnny's been representing the team at all the league meetings since. Uh, and uh, so, those it's been like it's it's been a parlor game for those of us who cover the story figure out who, where it came from. Um, you know, John Gruden alleges in the lawsuit that it came from the NFL. The NFL denies it. Um, I, we had depositions from a former executive, Bruce Allen, where who, where these emails you know came from the server at the Washington Commanders um, uh, server where 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 Bruce Allen was interacting with. Uh, With these uh, these emails that were you know misogynistic, they were homophobic and uh, and it was they're racist uh, emails. Um, And uh, you know there's so we really don't know yet where it came from. But if it did, if it's proven that it did come from Snyder, that's a big concern because uh, that's that's a lot of liability for the league.
0: So by buying the team, could Harris and the league essentially be also buying that legal liability?
2: that's been uh that's been a topic of uh these these negotiations uh there's the my sources have told me for months that uh josh harris has no interest in um indemnifying snyder over pretty much anything including you know beyond this lawsuit from gruden there's a couple investigations that are still ongoing um you know that one could even be criminal a federal investigation so the, the they don't and the nfl owners also don't want this to stick to, to, to josh harris so there's probably gonna be some kind of carve out uh, worked out to um,
0: you know to 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 handle any of the litigation um, that's still ongoing. All right, we shall see how this all shakes out. AJ Perez, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Up next, we are entering the final weekend of Wimbledon, and we have one of the top tennis analysts on to give us a look inside this year's tournament. Patrick McEnroe, one-time French Open champion, has remained deeply involved in the world of American tennis as an ESPN commentator, a coach, and a trainer, and now the president of the Tennis Hall of Fame. I spoke to him about all of that, plus why we haven't seen American men break through at the top level in the last two decades. We'll have that conversation next. All right, very excited to be joined now by the one and only Patrick McEnroe. Welcome, Patrick.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm here in our beautiful ESPN studios at Wimbledon, and uh, it's been an awesome tournament, and we're looking forward to the final weekend.
0: Yeah, I can, I can see just a little slice of Wimbledon behind you. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we're, you know, we're recording this. we we've got the women's final is set and the men's semifinals coming up. What have been the big stories for you for this tournament?
3: You know, there's been, um, you know, obviously Djokovic on the men's side continuing to dominate at 36. You know, he's going for his eighth Wimbledon title. Uh, which would tie Roger Federer um, and his 24th major overall. So that's certainly uh, been the top line story on the men's side. But uh, it's also been cool to see the two of the great young players in Carlos Alcaraz, who's, who's actually the top seed, uh, and Yannick Sinner. Sinner will play Djokovic in one of the men's semifinals, and Alcaraz will play uh, Daniil Medvedev, the Russian, who wasn't able to play last year. As you may recall, uh, he and the other Russian and Belarusian players because uh, uh, they banned them from completing the tournament because of the war. So that was turned this year, which I think was the right decision. Um, so you saw quite a few of the Russian and Belarusian players do quite well, including on the women's side, uh, Sabalenka, who just lost in the semifinal. She had a lead against An Jabor from Tunisia. So that's certainly a huge story as well, that Jabor. Um, you know, representing uh, Africa, representing, um, you know, Arab women as well. You know, uh, she sort of took the tennis world by storm last year, getting to the final here and then getting to the final also of the U.S. Open. So she's now back in the final and she's actually going to be a solid favorite to win it, which would be huge, obviously, for her and for all that she represents. She's playing on, she will be playing against Marquetta Vondrosova from the Czech Republic, which is a little bit of a surprise that she got this far. Um, So I think it's a great opportunity for Jabour. And of course, the men's semifinals set to take place tomorrow with two of the great young players in the game. And we keep waiting for someone to actually beat Djokovic in a big, in a big spot in a big best of five set match. Hasn't really happened yet. Um, So we'll see if Djokovic is to win his eighth Wimbledon, he's going to likely have to go through these two great young players. So play center, as I said, in the semis uh, tomorrow, uh, Friday, um, coming up here. And then, you know, the winner of Alcaraz, Medvedev. I expect that to be Alcaraz.
0: Yeah, no, I was going to ask you, do you think we're, it just feels like we've moved from Federer, Nadal, Djokovic to Djokovic, Alcaraz. Do you see anyone challenging those two for the very top level on the men's side anytime soon?
3: You know, I think Sinner's a guy that could do that. I mean, he, um, he actually beat Alcaraz here last year at Wimbledon. He had a two-set-to-love lead against Djokovic here at Wimbledon. So I think he has got enough firepower in his game. Uh, he's very quick. He's very athletic. I think the question is, has he added enough variety to his game to beat Djokovic uh, on this surface? But the short answer to your question is probably not. I mean, Djokovic appears that he's going to stay right there at the top, even though he's 36. I mean, he seems to be playing and moving and more as motivated as he's ever been. So it doesn't look like he's going any, anywhere anytime soon. Alcaraz uh has won one major at the U.S. Open last year. But remember, Djokovic didn't play. He wasn't allowed to play because he wasn't vaccinated. He couldn't get in the country. And Medvedev, on the other hand, we're not talking that much about him, but he's won a major. He beat Djokovic in the U.S. Open final a couple of years ago. He never played that well at Wimbledon. Um, so he's a guy, you know, that could also upset the apple cart of those two that you mentioned. But there's no doubt that coming into the tournament, we were all – I was hoping to see an Alcaraz Djokovic final because I think that's the match that everybody wants to see. We only saw two sets of it really at the French Open and then Alcaraz cramped up after just two sets, which – I think was because of the 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 mental pressure and playing Djokovic in such a big match. Um, But I think that's the match that all of tennis would like to say yes.
0: Yeah. And going back around, Christopher Eubanks came within a few points of upsetting Medvedev getting into the semifinals. Is his run just a nice little Cinderella story that we're going to forget about or does it mean anything long term?
3: Well, that's a great question. First of all, it was an am- it's been an amazing run. I mean, Eubanks really took the tournament by storm. Uh, you know, the, he, he's never made the main draw of Wimbledon. When oh, he's been four times, he's lost in the qualifying of Wimbledon. This guy's not young. He's 27. So he played those few years at Georgia Tech, played college ball. And then for, you know, the last five, six years, he's been sort of toiling in the minor leagues of tennis, so much so that he started, he wanted to take my job. He wanted to be a commentator. And he was actually really good at it, uh, commentating in his off weeks for Tennis Channel, because he didn't know if he could actually make it, you know, if he could break that top 100, start getting into majors. So just this year, it started to happen. Uh, and in fact, coming into Wimbledon, he won his first ever title uh, in Mallorca, the home of Rafael Nadal which is one of the two tune-up tournaments. And then he just continued that momentum, had a great week at Wimbledon, beating Cam Norrie, who was a top player, beating Tsitsipas in five sets, and then nearly beating Medvedev in the quarterfinal. So I I think that he is going to be for real, whether we're going to see him consistently in the quarter semis of majors. I'm not sure of that yet. I think Wimbledon uh, and grass is the best surface for him. But this this story took over our coverage at ESPN. And I got so many messages from people back home over the course of the last week saying, this guy is so much fun. He's my, you know, he's my he's my favorite player now. And he's a great guy. He's a great young man. He sort of gets it with the crowd. So I hope he will continue. Uh, we've got a lot of really good young American players. I actually thought that we would you know, see a few of them get as far as Eubanks did, like Tiafo, like Taylor Fritz. Sebastian Corda, it didn't happen they all went out early and lo and behold it's Christopher Eubanks left standing so his life has changed now he's going to go back home to the U.S. to Atlanta where he's from and uh, he's he's, you know become a big star so we'll see how he handles that but definitely if he can stay healthy with that you know big long thin frame of his I think he can be a serious factor at the top of the men's game yes
0: yeah, and I'm. I'm glad you brought up the sort of world of Americans' men's tennis. Part of me feels like the narrative of, you know, the failure of American men to reach the very top level, basically, since Andy Roddick, I guess, um, is kind of overblown because, you know, there's only so many people in the world who can be that. And once, you know, it's not always going to be an American in there. Another part of me wonders if there is something structural over the last 20 years, maybe something that's changing um, that has limited American participation at the very top level. So what's your take there?
3: Uh, you know, it's a great question and we could go on for a long time about it. I, I ran the player development program for the USTA, the U S tennis association for about seven years. And that's really all we looked at. So I think first of all, um, the world has changed, right? There's more countries playing tennis. And for the most part, I'm going to generalize here, but for the most part in Europe, Um, which where tennis is the second or third biggest sport in most European countries, they tend to get much better athletes playing tennis. You know, if you look at Djokovic, even look at these young guys, Sinner, Alcaraz, Runa from Denmark, obviously Federer and Nadal. If these guys grew up in the U.S., I mean, they'd be like superstars, possibly in other sports, baseball, you know, basketball, football, what what have you. They go to tennis because tennis is, is very popular in those countries. So I think we have an uphill climb a little bit in our country to get those, those kind of athletes into tennis. Uh, and then w- when we do that, I think we did fall behind in the last 20 or y- twenty years or so in how we develop young players. You know, the game has become much more baseline-oriented, more about movement, more about decision-making, more about speed, and uh, we had to do some catch-up there. I think we've, we, we've made some good inroads there because we've got, you know, Tiafo's a great athlete, Sebastian Corda. Taylor Fritz, great tennis player, not a phenomenal athlete, but really good. And both those guys, by the way, are top 10. The other thing you mentioned, which is important, is look, I mean, let's be, let's be real here. Feder, Nadal, Djokovic basically have utterly dominated men's professional tennis at the top for the last 15 years. So you start to see other guys, you know, sneak into the mix. Um, you know, Dimitrov, for example, he's 32, never got close to winning a major. Kei Nishikori from Japan. Now you got the next group of guys. Medvedev did win one. Sitsapas, Alexander Zverev. These guys are you know great players, but they can't win a major mostly because these these top guys are there. So you have to have a combination of great athletes, great training, great preparation, and then also you know be able to knock down these all-time greats. And for the most part, nobody's been able to do that. Whether you're wherever you're from, whether you're American, European uh australian south american and so on so i think we're at a better position now but clearly you know the the balance of power for professional tennis particularly men's tennis is still in europe
0: we're in an era of, of we're in this boom of sports docuseries net um tennis got the netflix treatment uh through breakpoints and it made me an anjabor fan so I'm, I'm hoping she wins the final <laughs> um, right do you think there's any tension between you know this Hallowed dignity of tennis that you see in players like Roger Federer and in players bringing out more of their personality um, that you know kind of plays better on social media, plays better. You know, I mean, people loved watching your brother lose his mind, um, right? So yeah, do you think do you think these things can coexist?
3: Oh, they definitely can. I mean, my the people like to watch my brother lose his mind, but they also love the fact that he won. Yeah. You know, so when you look at someone like Nick Kyrgios. The guy's never won anything. I mean, you know, he's been to the Wimbledon final last year and that, you know, turned the, the world upside down because he is such a character and he is so charismatic and kids love to watch him. But you need to win. You know, it's one thing to have the personality. But if you don't win and by winning, you need to win majors. You know, in other sports, you can be the seventh or eighth best basketball player in the world. Right. And people know you everywhere or the seventh or eighth best baseball player. Then you need a team around you, of course, like, in you know, in all team sports in tennis. If you're seven, eight in the world and you haven't won anything, it's like, ah, oh, that got you like you even just said it earlier. Oh, like American. We're not really at the top. Well, this guy's nine and 10 in the world. Yeah. OK. Right. Taylor Fritz. I mean, so so it's all relative to a certain extent. But to get to, to have you want to have it all. So, you you know, obviously there's a the classic guys like Federer and then you go back to Pete Sampras and. Um, you know, then you have the guys. You know, Andre Agassi, who brought all that personality. You know, Leighton Hewitt from Australia. He wasn't as successful as those guys, but he was number one in the world. Uh, and Alcaraz, and I think Sinner and Huruna. These young guys, they have a lot of the moxie. They have a lot of that it factor. And now the question becomes: Can they become sort of household names with that personality? But the only way you get to be a household name as a tennis player is really to win consistently in the big events
0: and before we go you are president of the tennis hall of fame tell me about your role there and and what's going on with that
3: well i just took over as a president um dan faber who ran the usda foundation as the ceo so we're working together and the tennis hall of fame is where the history of tennis um is in newport rhode island you know it's where hall of famers it's the ultimate honor in tennis To be a Hall of Famer, and of course, to be able to be a Hall of Famer, you got to be an all-time great. So we have our induction ceremony every summer. Actually, I'll be going straight from Wimbledon up to Newport next weekend for the induction ceremony. One of the greatest wheelchair players in history, Esther Vergeer from the from the Netherlands, is going into the Hall of Fame, which is going to be super exciting uh, to celebrate her. Um, And it's just uh, and there's a tournament that goes on the same week, a men's professional tournament on grass by the way, the only professional tournament still played on grass in the good old USA. So it's a great spot. And again, uh, our goal with the Hall of Fame is to try to make it even more global than it already is so that people all over the world know about it. Because what I've learned since I took this role just a couple of months ago is, most people around the world, they don't really know what Hall is. A so Hall of Fame is like an American thing. Hmm, yeah. you know, we know about it because we've got the baseball, basketball, football Hall of Fame, but it's not as commonplace in Europe. So that'll be a big part of my job, but it's a lot of fun. It's a great honor and um, it's a beautiful place. And if anyone gets a chance to visit up in Newport, uh, come and see us at the Hall of Fame.
0: All right, Patrick McEnroe, returning all my shots. Enjoy the final weekend. Thanks for joining us on the show.
3: You got to appreciate you having me.
0: That is it for today. Enjoy the weekend. Enjoy the Wimbledon finals. Share this podcast with a friend or drop us a rating on your podcast platform. Thanks for listening. We will see you Monday.